0: Good morning church, if you have your Bibles, let's open those up to Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 2, we're going to be looking at verses 14 to 41 this morning, Acts chapter 2 verses 14 to 41, let's open up with a word of prayer. Father, as we open up your word this morning, I pray that you would open our hearts as well. That we would have eyes to see and ears to hear. And that the Holy Spirit would be in this place and helping us to uh, take this message and apply it to our lives. That we would walk out of this place different than we walked in. And that as we go, that we would take this message of the gospel and that we would share it to a lost and dying world. And that we would be like Peter, changed Uh, definitely differently because of the resurrection and because of the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Lord, we love you. It's in your Son's precious name that I pray. Amen. So this morning, uh, what I am doing is I am giving you a summary of a summary. Okay? Luke tells us about this passage that Peter is going to... He's going to give a sermon here. And he is going to... Luke is giving you an abbreviation of everything that Peter had to say. He says later in our passage uh, that he gives more. He speaks more in depth and gives more information. But Luke is giving a summary of everything that Peter said. And what I'm doing this morning is I'm giving you a summary of his summary. uh, Because there is a lot of information in this passage. uh, And so we've got a lot of work to do today. And so we're going to dive right in. So last week, we saw where the Holy Spirit descended on the church during the celebration of Pentecost in Jerusalem. Luke had trouble describing all that happened uh, based on what he had been told. And so he uses similes to try to help us understand the best we can based on what he had had described. He said there was a sound like that of a rushing wind that came from heaven and it filled the house where they were staying. And then he said they saw tongues like flames of fire that separated and rested on them. And then after this happened, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they began to speak in different tongues as the Spirit enabled them. So at some point in all of this commotion, the disciples made their way out of the house and then people who were in Jerusalem from all over the world, who were there to celebrate Pentecost, they heard all these uneducated Galilean men speaking in their own language. Languages that they should not have been able to hear or should not have been able to know. Right? When, when people recognized Peter as he was sitting around the fire, they recognized him because he had an accent. Right, People, people know you're from the south, Because of the way you speak, correct? Yes or no? Right? Like, you go up north or somewhere out west, and they look at you and they go, you're not from around here, are you? Right? That's what they think about Galileans. They had an accent. There was a way that they spoke that made them distinguishable among everyone else. And so when these Galileans come out into the street and suddenly they're speaking all these different languages, everyone goes, what is going on here? How are these uneducated men able to speak in my language? They shouldn't even know how to say that. And what did they hear them talking about? Well, Luke tells us they were declaring the magnificent acts of God. So they're speaking languages they don't know, and as they go out into the streets, they're declaring the magnificent acts of God. Everyone is perplexed, wondering what all this meant, but some sneered and claimed they're drunk on new wine. And as I said last week, anyone who's ever been around a drunk person obviously knows that that's not the right answer of what's going on here because being drunk on new wine certainly doesn't make anyone come off looking more intelligent, all right? I mean, that's just never happened. But the question does remain, what is happening here? Well, Peter is about to stand up and he's going to let everyone know what's happening here. And that brings me to the first point that I would like to bring up this morning. And it's not in the text as much as it is derived from the text. And that first point is the resurrection of Jesus and the presence of the Holy Spirit changes you. And Peter is a wonderful example of this. Before we ever get into Peter's message, I want you to think back to the last time that we heard from or about Peter in Matthew's Gospel. Right, That's where we were before we started Acts. The last time we saw or heard from Peter, he was mentioned directly on the night of Jesus' betrayal at Jesus' trial. Peter initially runs off, just like all the other disciples, when Jesus is arre- arrested and then a modicum of bravery comes back to him. He makes his way back into the courtyard of Caiaphas' house while Jesus is being falsely tried. And while he sits there, Peter is accused three times of being one of Jesus' disciples. And three times, Peter denies even knowing Jesus. Like, I mean, not even being an associate of Jesus. And the reason he does this is that he's afraid of what might happen if people associate him with Christ. I mean, think about it. This the religious leaders took the leader of the group. They took the one that is well known. They took the one that is well loved. They took the one who many believed was sent by God to restore Israel to her rightful place as the leading kingdom in the world and they severely mistreated him they're beating him they're falsely accusing him and they're about to ensure that the roman government murders him if they have no restraint in how they're treating jesus how do you think that they're going to treat peter and seeing all this like even though peter had all this bravado going into this situation When he sees all that's happening, Peter's loyalty wavers, and he denies knowing Jesus to save his own skin. And the Gospel of Matthew closes out without ever hearing any more from Simon Peter, right? The leader of the disciples, the one that Jesus called the rock. The Gospel closes out, and we hear nothing else. But if you read John's Gospel... In chapter 21, we see that this is not the end of the story for Peter, nor was it the end of his relationship with Jesus. After Jesus' resurrection, he appeared before the disciples numerous times. And in chapter 21, we see that this is the third time that he has appeared before the disciples, and one morning, Peter was approached by Jesus after a night of fishing with several of the other disciples. And Jesus restores his relationship with Peter and putting Peter back into his place as the leader of the disciples by asking him three times if Peter loves him. Can you imagine what that felt like to Peter? Peter denies Jesus three times after saying that he would die instead of denying him. But he denies him three times and then Jesus asks him three times, Peter, do you love me? And each time, Peter says, you know that I love you. And each time, Jesus commissions him. He says, feed my lambs. Shepherd my sheep. Feed my sheep. And on top of this renewal, Jesus gives Peter a hint at the type of death that Peter would die. He says that you're going to go in a place that you don't want to go and you will spread your arms in a way that you don't want them to be spread. And church history tells us that Peter was crucified upside down for his devotion to Jesus. He was crucified upside down because he asked to be crucified upside down. He was going to be crucified, and he didn't want to die in the same manner as Jesus. He didn't believe himself to be worthy to die in the same manner as Jesus did. And so instead of being crucified right side up, he asked to be crucified upside down. And then after that, after telling Jesus or uh, Peter these things, Jesus says, follow me. So we have this complete restoration of Peter's relationship with Christ. And follow him, Peter absolutely does. The reality of Jesus' resurrection changes everything for Peter. It changes everything. It's as though he realized everything that Jesus said was true. He's here, right? He's back from the dead. Everything that he said was true. He told us that this was going to happen, and here he is. Everything that the scriptures have said is true. Right, The reason why I chose Matthew's Gospel is because it constantly points back to the Old Testament and says, look at Jesus. He's the Messiah. Look at all that's going to happen to prove that He's the Messiah. And with Jesus standing right there, Peter realizes everything the Scripture said is true. God keeps every promise. Even ones that He made thousands of years ago. God keeps every promise. Promise, And it's like Peter is realizing this and he goes, what am I so afraid of? If God keeps all of his promises, what am I so afraid of? And so you have the guy that cowered before a servant girl, a girl that was probably 13 years old, that denied that he even knew Jesus. Right? That guy is gone. That guy is completely gone. The man that is getting ready to get up and speak has seen and been restored by the risen Christ. The man that is getting ready to get up and speak has just been filled by the Holy Spirit. So he's not only going to associate with Jesus as one of his disciples, but he's about to call out thousands of people for their complicity in murdering Jesus. He's saying, that's my guy and you killed him. This is not the same man. The resurrection of Jesus and the presence of the Holy Spirit changes everything. So let's check out what he has to say. And we'll break it down into parts. The first thing that he's going to do is clarify what just happened with the disciples speaking in tongues. That's going to happen in 14 to 21. And then he's going to call them out for killing Jesus in 22 and 23. Then he's going to speak to the reality of the resurrection in 24 to 36. And finally, he's going to call on for the people to repent of their sin in 37 to 41. And so let's get started with 14 to 21. Follow along with me as I read that. Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice and proclaimed to them, fellow Jews and all you residents of Jerusalem, let this be known to you and pay attention to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only nine in the morning. On the contrary, this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. And it will be in the last days, said God, that I will pour out my spirit on all people. Then your sons and your daughters will prophecy. Your young men will see visions and your old men will dream dreams. I will even pour out my spirit on my servants in those days, both men and women, and they will prophecy. I will display wonders in the heaven above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and a cloud of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord comes. Then everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So, as I stated, the first thing of note here is that there doesn't seem to be a bit of fear in Peter. Right? The guy that ran away from the courtyard where Jesus was being held, stands up in the presence of thousands of people as the disciples, as the church is coming under attack. There's no cowering. There's no fear. There are people who are taking the opportunity to malign them when they experience something that's difficult for them to understand. Right, They see all that's happening with the disciples speaking in tongues and what do they say? These people are drunk at nine in the morning. They, that, that's the only explanation that makes sense is they're drunk at nine in the morning. So Peter stands up along with the other 11 apostles and I like that Luke includes that the other 11 apostles were there as well. Don't forget, Peter's not the only one that ran away. Peter is not the only one that abandoned Jesus that night. And so not only was Peter changed but the other disciples were changed as well all the disciples except for John died a martyr's death all of them and so where how do you get from running away and cowering from being willing to die for the truth that you know it is the difference between the resurrection and the presence of the holy spirit in your life the resurrection and the holy spirit changes everything For everyone. Anyway, Peter tells them, No, what you're seeing is not the work of alcohol, especially since it's nine o'clock in the morning. Most of these people had only been awake for three hours. Right? What you're seeing is the beginning of the last days. This is the beginning of the last days that has been prophesied about by the prophet Joel. And the quote that he gives comes from Joel chapter 2, verses 28 to 32. In that passage, as you heard, God is pouring out His Spirit on all people. This means that people from all over the world will see their sin and they will understand their need of a Savior. They will repent. They will trust in Jesus to remove that sin and to restore their relationship with God the Father. And that means that people from every tribe, tongue, and nation will worship God around His throne and these people are the beginning of that promise. And he says, At the beginning... Of the last days, the people of God that the Spirit has fallen on, they will speak prophecy and they will dream dreams and they will have visions and no one is left out. Joel says that even the slaves will experience this in those days. But as the last days continue, things get a little crazy, don't they? I mean, that's some scary stuff that he's talking about. He's like... There's going to be blood. There's going to be fire. There's going to be columns of smoke. The sun turns to darkness and the moon turns to blood before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. So we see this happening at the front end and then we have this preview also of what's going to happen closer towards the end end of the last days. Luckily, there is the beautiful promise That during all of that chaos, that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone that calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. To be clear, this does not mean that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord is saved from earthly calamity. All right. Just because you call on the name of the Lord, that doesn't mean that when the blood and the fire and the columns of smoke appear, that we don't get touched by any of that stuff. Like we still live and exist in a sinful world. We still are affected by the brokenness of existence. One day, we won't experience that anymore. But until Jesus returns and restores everything back to normal, right the way that things were supposed to be, like we experience calamity in this life. But what it does mean is that everyone who acknowledges their sin and the lordship of Christ will be saved from their sin. There are no exceptions to that offering. Everyone is welcome. And the offer is extended to us here today. We are closer to those awful end time prophecies than they were. Right? There is a great and terrible day of the Lord that is on the horizon. We don't know when that's going to come, but it is going to come because why? What did Peter realize? God keeps his promises. Everything that is said in the Old Testament, all these prophecies are going to come true. One day, Jesus is going to return. And on that day, those who have put their faith in him, that is going to be the greatest day of their existence. That is the great day of the Lord. On that day, they will see their Savior face to face. On that day, they will see the object of their worship, the greatest object of all their affection. For those who are persisting in their rebellion, Jesus' return is going to be terrible. It's going to be terrible because it means that their time is up, their rebellion is over. There's no longer any opportunity for repentance. I don't say that to scare anyone. I don't. Because you can't scare anyone into heaven. All right? Like, have you ever met, I've met people who have gone to churches where the pastor does nothing but fire and brimstone. Right? He's, I, I don't say this lightly. He's literally trying to scare the hell out of people. Right? But I have generally found that anyone who has been scared into heaven, it doesn't stick. Right? It doesn't stick. Because all it is is an emotional response to try to avoid hell. Right? And if that's how you understand the gospel, you've misunderstood the gospel. Like if it is just a get out of hell free card, you you've misunderstood the gospel an emotional response that comes from fear is not what Jesus that's not living an abundant life Jesus said he came so that people could have life and have it abundantly and living in fear of your savior is not abundant life Nothing in Jesus' ministry suggests that scare tactics are the best way that the church is meant to go about sharing the gospel. But we do have to be honest about what the Bible says is going to happen. Jesus is coming back, and it's going to be a great and terrible day when he returns. And this is a reality that's coming, a great and terrible day of the Lord. Now some of you may be thinking, "Joe must have gotten it wrong. Right? The prophet, speaking for God, says that all humanity who has been saved will have the Holy Spirit. And then those people will speak prophecy and they will dream dreams and have visions. And here I am, I'm saved and I have never once spoken a word of prophecy. How does that work? Like, How do you put those two things together and help, it, help us understand that? Well, if that's you here this morning, you're probably right and wrong at the same time. All right? Often, when we think about the gift of prophecy, we think about the Holy Spirit giving us visions of the future, and we speak those to whomever it applies to. And sometimes that's right. Sometimes that is how prophecy works. And you're probably going, yeah, that's never happened to me. I've never done that. Most people haven't. But if you've ever shared the gospel the whole gospel that included the promise of Jesus's return, then you have uttered prophecy, right? That is a prophecy that is going to come true. That might seem like a cop out, but it's true, right? The old Testament prophets were commissioned to know God deeply and they were to then take the words that they were given by God to those who needed to hear them and to speak them faithfully. Our commission as prophets today look, looks different than it did to the Old Testament prophets, but if you have done your duty as a believer and shared the gospel in an effort to fulfill the great commissions, congratulations, you're a prophet. Right. If you have told people that they are sinners in need of a savior, and that one day Jesus is coming to judge the righteous and the rebellious, then congratulations, you're a prophet. Because go read the prophets. That's what God called them to do. Return back to the proper worship of the Lord. That's what the prophets did. And that's what the Great Commission calls us to do. Go out and proclaim the gospel. If we're going to call if people are going to call on the name of the Lord to be saved, then that's what we have to do. We have to take up our mantle as prophets, as Peter does in this sermon. We have to point people to the truth about their sin, and we have to call people to repentance. And that's what he does right here. Look at what he says next in verses 22 and 23. He says, fellow Israelites, listen to these words. This Jesus of Nazareth was a man attested to you by God with miracles, wonders, and signs that God did among you through him just as you yourselves know. Though he was delivered up according to God's determined plan and foreknowledge, you used lawless people to nail him to a cross and kill him. Peter's not afraid. You used lawless people. He's not afraid of the Roman government. He just called them lawless people. He's not afraid of the people. You killed him. This is on you. In these two verses, Peter shares several gospel truths with his listeners. In verse 22, Peter points out Jesus' humanity. Jesus was a man that was attested to you by God with miracles, wonders, and signs. And I, as I've mentioned before, those miracles, wonders, and signs weren't the point. They were an exclamation point. Okay? like That's not what we should be focusing on. I mean, they're really cool. What it is, what those signs and miracles and wonders are, is Jesus pointing to the way that things should be. And the way that things will be when he returns, right? When he heals someone of leprosy, it's because people aren't supposed to have leprosy, right? When he brings people back from the dead, it's because people aren't supposed to die. That's a result of sin, Okay, So he's giving a a preview of what heaven is going to be like and what the restoration, the new creation is going to be like. He's showing that, but all of that is to point to him. He is how that all happens. And so all of those things are the exclamation point on pointing to Jesus. They're meant to show that Jesus should be listened to. But instead of listening to him, Peter says that the people he preached to used lawless people to nail him to a cross and kill him according to God's predetermined plan and foreknowledge. So Peter's not pulling any punches in this sermon. Did you notice, though, how casually Peter threw together God's sovereignty and man's free will without blinking? Like God's sovereignty and man's free will interlocked completely together. He stated that God planned to send Jesus to the cross. He knew it was going to happen. And yet, the people that are listening to Peter are culpable for Jesus' death because it was their sin that sent him to the cross. It may have even been some of their words, crucify him, crucify him. They may have even been present as Jesus was sent to the cross. And we are also culpable for this because it was our sin that sent Jesus to the cross. So don't think that Peter is just pointing the finger at them. He's also pointing the finger at all of us. This sermon applies to us as well. And so with God's pre-planned idea to send jesus to the cross and their sin sending jesus to the cross how is it possible that these two interact interact together even better how is it fair to put that on us to make us culpable for jesus's death if god planned it out i mean it, it's a question that plagues people all the time well, just because God knew how it was going to shake out, that doesn't mean that he made anybody do anything. Right? He didn't, he didn't make anybody do it. He just knew how it was going to happen. He knew that if Jesus came into this area at this time in history, the religious leaders are going to respond in a certain way. And even though they heard the teachings of Jesus, even though that they had the entire Old Testament showing them the proper way to treat people, and along with that, the Old Testament clearly points out that Jesus was the Messiah. Again, that's the reason why we studied Matthew. Right? He pointed out over and over again that Jesus was the Messiah. And Jesus called them out on their hypocrisy numerous times. They had more than enough opportunities to repent. Even with all that, the religious leaders were determined to have Jesus killed. They were determined to do it. God knew that the people would respond a certain way to their leadership. And he knew that all of this would come together and end with Jesus on the cross fulfilling thousands of years of prophecy. He knew all of that was going to happen. So God weaved His way through thousands of individual choices, more than we could even count, so that He would ensure that His plans came to pass and He didn't violate anyone's free will in the process of making all this happen. What this tells us is that God's plan is not going to be thwarted by anything that we do and that he's going to hold us accountable for all of our choices even if he uses our choices to further his plan. Right? We're not going to thwart God's plan. Nothing is going to change the outcome. And if in our rebellion we try to stop God, God is going to hold us accountable for that even if he uses our rebellion to further his plan. And continuing with the plan, God did not leave Jesus in the grave. He allowed his son to die on the cross for our sin, but he had no intention of leaving him there to rot, which is what Peter points out in these next verses that Luke shares from his sermon. Look at verses 24 to 36. God raised him up, ending the pains of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by death. For David says of him, I saw the Lord ever before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. Moreover, my flesh will rest in hope because you will not abandon me in Hades or allow your Holy One to see decay. You have revealed the paths of life to me. You will fill me with gladness in your presence. Brothers and sisters, I can confidently speak to you about the patriarch David. He is both dead and buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Since he was a prophet, he knew that God had sworn an oath to him to seat one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke concerning the resurrection of the Messiah. He was not abandoned in Hades, and his flesh did not experience decay. God has raised this Jesus. We are all witnesses of this. Therefore, since he has been exalted to the right hand of God and has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, he has poured out what you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into the heavens, but he himself says... The Lord declared to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know with certainty that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. I like how he gets that last punch in there, whom you crucified. Don't forget, this is all your fault, right? (laughs) In these verses, Peter declares the importance of Jesus' resurrection. Right? It's the most important thing that we can experience is this resurrection, right? We make such a huge deal about his birth at Christmas, but it's truly Easter. That is the big deal. The resurrection of Christ changes everything. Peter declares the importance of the resurrection, and he uses it as an apologetic argument for Jesus being the Messiah to this Jewish audience, After saying that these people used lawless people to kill Jesus, he tells them that God wouldn't let Jesus stay dead because he was the Messiah. Death couldn't hold him. Right? Death's got nothing on Jesus. And then Peter goes on to speak about how King David anticipated a, a resurrection, and that comes from Psalm 16, verses 8 to 11. That's what he quotes there. There he says God's Holy One will not see decay, but then he points out, David is still in the grave. David is dead and buried. If you like, you can go see his tomb. If you like, we can roll the stone back you can go look at his, at his bones. Right? He's still there. David was a prophet. And he was speaking about the coming Messiah. So he says, know with certainty that the Messiah that he was talking about was Jesus that you crucified. He is both Lord and... And the Messiah. Now, all these people being Jews would have respected King David. And they would have seen a connection between all this uproar that happened 50 days ago. Right? What happened 50 days ago? Jesus died and resurrected. And so there's going to be a lot of commotion, a lot of information that happened about that. 50 days ago, everybody's going to know about this man, this holy man that died on a Roman cross and apparently came back to life three days later and had been seen by tons and tons of people, right? We're still talking about it today. You don't think they heard about it then, right? So this made the news, okay? And so that would have been the talk of the town and maybe even the talk of the world at, even at this point, who knows, who knows how far it went even then, And what Peter is doing is he's connecting the dots for them at this celebration of Pentecost. You killed him according to God's plan, and God brought him back to life. And now forgiveness of sin is possible for all who repent and will believe. With all this said, look at what God does in verses 37 to 41. When they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what should we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, each of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. With many other words he testified and strongly urged them, saying, Be saved from this corrupt generation. So those who accepted this message were baptized, and that day about 3,000 people were added to them. 3,000 people. So with their eyes open to the reality of their sin and the understanding of who Jesus was and what he came to do, some of the people that Peter was preaching to realized, "Uh uh-oh, I'm in trouble. They finally came to the realization of the reality of their sin. And it's, it's not until, like, the scriptures tell us that non-believers go through life having a veil over their eyes. They don't see themselves the way that they need to see themselves in order to repent. Satan blinds the people. Their sin keeps them blinded. Blinded? I don't know. Anyway, they're, they can't see. Right? Satan makes sure that that stays that way. And the Holy Spirit's job is to come and remove the veil. And when they see themselves for who they really are, sinners who have rebelled against a holy and righteous God, and then the the choice is put before them of, do you want to stay like this and go to hell because you have rebelled against a holy and righteous God? Or do you want forgiveness offered to you through the, the holy and righteous sacrifice of Jesus on your behalf? What do you want? Make your choice. Well, that's what happened to these people. They heard it. The veil was removed, and they saw themselves. And they went, "Oh no! What do we do? What do we do?" The spiritual blinders had came off, and they said, "What do we do?" And Peter replied, "Repent and be baptized." There's nothing else to do. Everything else has been done. Right? What is there left for you to do? All you do is repent. And be baptized, each of you in the name of Jesus, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, there has been some pushback by some people based on the way Peter says this, because he says, repent and be baptized, right? So it kind of sounds like Peter is saying that baptism is required for salvation, but it doesn't have to be taken that way. Let's just look at it as a sequence of events, okay? First, you should repent that's how we come to salvation all right repenting is realizing that you're a sinner and then repenting it means to turn you turn from your sin and you turn towards Jesus all right you take on the lordship of Christ baptism is not a requirement for salvation we can look to the thief on the cross for proof of that the man on the cross was never baptized, but he believed on Jesus as the Messiah. He asked Jesus to remember him when he came into his kingdom and Jesus told that man, today you will be with me in paradise. That man was never baptized. So baptism is not a requirement for salvation. But it is an act of obedience to Jesus. Often it's people's first act of obedience to Jesus. Right? In the Great Commission, he says to go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so baptism is an outward profession of an inward reality. We are telling the world through our baptism that we are followers of Christ. And that doesn't mean a, t- a ton in our culture. right? We're not persecuted the way that people are persecuted all over the world. In some places, that outward Proclamation means death. It means being abandoned by your family. It means being ostracized. You can't find work. You can't find, you, know, you can't find food. I mean, it's a big deal in other places. It should be a big deal to us. But, I mean, for us, it doesn't mean death. It doesn't mean that our families are going to abandon us in most cases. But that is what they are told to do. They are told to repent of their sin. When they repent of their sin, they too will be filled with the Holy Spirit. And what do we see there, though? They don't get tongues of fire falling from heaven. You don't see these 3,000 people speaking in tongues that they don't know. Right? This is something that was a unique experience that led to these people being saved. Right? It was descriptive, not prescriptive. We talked about that as well. We see that this promise is offered everyone. Peter begs them to be saved and come apart from this corrupt generation. And that is a call that I can also make here today. Come apart from this corrupt generation. I mean, it doesn't take much to see the corruptness of this generation. And I believe that every generation can say that. Um, But like, if you believe Scripture, it's just going to get worse, right? It's just going to get worse. This create, this part of creation, broken by sin, is circling the drain. It's going down the drain, and it will continue to go down the drain until Christ comes back and restores everything. So we should not be shocked by this. We should be prepared for this, and as believers in Christ, we should be a shining light in all of this darkness. And so, I want to make that call to repentance here today. Same as Peter. Come apart from this corrupt generation. Is there anyone here today that hears this call from the Holy Spirit to repent? Maybe it's for the first time. Maybe today is the first day that the Holy Spirit has removed those blinders. Maybe today is the first time that you have fully realized your need for a Savior. And you need to come speak to me and go, Brother, what do I do? All right? And we will talk about that and we will pray about that. Maybe today is the day where you have realized that you have some nagging sin in your life, a sin that is persistent. That has not, like, I mean, it hasn't budged, but the Holy Spirit is saying today is the day to repent. Like, repentance is not a one-time deal. Like, we need to be consistent in our repentance. Like, when we refuse to repent of our sin, like, our hearts get hard. So maybe today you're a believer, but you have this persistent sin that is nagging at your life, and the Holy Spirit is calling you today to Repent. Right? Maybe there's somebody in this room that you need to repent to. Right? Maybe that's what's going on. Okay. If that's the case and you need somebody to talk to, come talk to me. Go grab a deacon. Talk to somebody. Don't experience it alone. But if the Holy Spirit's calling you today, don't ignore it. He doesn't call forever. Alright? Number two if the resurrection and the presence of the Holy Spirit changes everything in the life of Peter, then these things will change everything in your life as well. All right? You don't have to be burdened by the person you used to be. Okay? Right? Like, I'm not who I want to be, but thank God I'm not who I used to be. Okay? And that goes for you as well. I don't know what burden you're carrying. I don't know what sin has put you in this place of shame or guilt. But you don't have to bear that burden. Christ bore it for you on the cross. It was nailed to the cross. It was bought and paid for. It is no longer yours to carry. Right? There's nothing that you can do that the blood of Christ cannot cover. If you will repent, God is happy to forgive that sin. And it's there waiting for you. And so, let yourself be changed. The Holy Spirit and the resurrection changes everything. And if you need help realizing that, come talk to me. All right? I love to talk about this stuff. And I'm here for you. Let's pray together. Father, I'm grateful for the resurrection. I'm grateful for the presence of the Holy Spirit. And I'm extremely grateful that I'm not who I used to be. And I pray that you would help me to become more like Jesus, who I want to be. And I pray that for everyone here. I pray that if there's anybody who is struggling with sin, that they would take this opportunity to repent. I pray if there's anybody here who doesn't know you, that today is the day of their salvation, that the Holy Spirit's removal of those blinders would, would result in a dead heart coming alive, and that we would get to rejoice in that, and we would get to see them baptized and get to see them begin their walk with you as a new creation. As we sing this last song, Lord, I pray that it would pierce the hearts of all and that we would be a light shining in the darkness for you. Lord, I love you. It's in your son's name that I pray. Amen.